Welcome to Hang Your Hat, Ideas That Are Close to Home. This is Episode 1, Thanksgiving. This week I'll be discussing the traditional Thanksgiving dinner, the Thanksgiving TV dinner connection, playing host to people with special dietary needs, and the timing of shopping during the holiday season. But first, early colonial American homes. The Thanksgiving episode, I decided to examine the kinds of homes that the pilgrims would have lived in, early colonial American homes. But before I start, I would like to note that I'm focusing on the homes of the English settlers during this period because the pilgrims, who are heavily associated with Thanksgiving, were English. I do, of course, know that there were other peoples in North America in the early 1600s, and I hope to focus on them in later episodes. Jamestown was the first successful permanent English settlement in North America. It was founded in 1607, at which point the colonists immediately began building a rudimentary fort, which was good because they were almost immediately attacked by the native inhabitants in the area. On May 26, 1607, they began building a more substantial fortification. The second fort was triangular with heavily armed bulwark at each corner, They actually had pretty heavy arms, like cannons. Two of the three bulwarks were facing the sea because they thought the Spanish, who had settled further south, would attack the colony. Only one of the bulwarks faced inland, the direction from which they were actually being attacked by the native population. Where were the settlers living while all of this fort building was taking place? In tents within the fort. Public buildings, like a church and a storehouse, also took precedent over house building. This probably saved a lot of work, since they didn't end up needing as many houses as they originally thought they would, because a lot of people died. Within a few months of the second fort being built, disease and hunger set in, and by 1608, only about 40% of the initial settlers were still alive. 1609 through 1610 was so bad that it was actually referred to as the starving time and some of the settlers resorted to cannibalism to stay alive. It also turns out that the water they were drinking was probably salty and contained arsenic, which didn't contribute to their health either. Also keep in mind that during this time, North America was going through the Little Ice Age, which means that the winter temperatures were much colder than normal. It is likely that at least some of these settlers had to overwinter in one of their tents rather than a house. When the Jamestown settlers did build houses, they were modeled after English houses, specifically those from Lincolnshire. Archaeological work in Jamestown identified the houses built as mud and stud houses, like the ones built in Lincolnshire, England at the time. This makes sense because one of the first carpenters in the colony was William Laxon of Lincolnshire, and he probably built the houses. Mud and stud houses actually follow a late medieval architectural style And the basic construction techniques for building these houses had been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years prior to its use by the Jamestown settlers. Mud and stud houses that were built in Jamestown were basically upright studs with cross beams between the studs forming a triangle. 
The spaces between the beams are filled with a mud and clay mixture that dries to form a thick wall. The houses were built around a central chimney, which would have been used for heating and cooking, and the roofs would have been made from thatch, which is dry grasses and straw. This type of house, with its thick walls, would have been pretty cozy and well insulated, but they had one problem. They caught fire all the time. The thatched roofs, which I like to refer to as kindling, combined with an errant spark from the fireplace that they were using all the time for cooking, meant that fires were a constant problem. Fast forward about 10 years and we find the pilgrims seeking freedom from religious persecution, landing in Plymouth Harbor in December of 1620. They had left the old world a little later than they had planned and they landed in wintertime, in the middle of the Little Ice Age, and the pilgrims had no homes, and very few of them had, to, had the skills to build one. Their group was made up of merchants and tailors. There were even a couple of printers, but there were hardly any carpenters or farmers among them. It's kind of a miracle that they didn't all die that first winter. The pilgrims started constructing their homes and storehouses in late December of 1620, but only managed to get a couple built during the first winter. For the first several months, they lived on the ship while they built new homes and storage. The first winter, more than half of them died from poor nutrition and inadequate housing for the weather. I'm actually not sure which would have been worse, living in the drafty tents of Jamestown or the wet, rat-infested pilgrim ships. I think I might prefer the presumably drier Jamestown tents but I think it's a safe bet that I would have been one of those that died from exposure in the first year either way. Like the Jamestown settlers, the Pilgrims also modeled their homes after the English cottage. But unlike the Jamestown settlers, they made use of the abundant forests in the areas and built a lot more with wood. The Pilgrims built timber-framed homes with wood-clabbered siding and steep roofs that allowed for a loft. The houses were built with one main general purpose room for living, eating, and sleeping. It had a fireplace and they were approximately 800 square feet. Floors were made of wood or just bare earth soaked with water and flattened smooth. Windows were small but allowed some light in during warm weather and in winter they were covered with cloth soaked in linseed oil or wooden shutters. Interior walls were likely made with wattle and daub. Wattle is a framework of small sticks, and daub is like a mortar that holds the sticks together and is made from things like clay, dirt, straw, and grass. The daub would be pushed into the wattle and would eventually be formed into a smooth surface like plaster. This type of construction has been used for thousands of years, and it is starting to become popular again because it's a very sustainable building technique. It probably took two or three months to finish a house, but the pilgrims were hindered not only by the weather, but also by fire. Like the Jamestown settlers, the pilgrims also covered their houses in thatch that amounted to kindling and then cooked in an open fireplace inside them. In December 1621, Mayflower passenger Edward Winslow wrote a letter in which he said, We have built seven dwelling houses and four for the use of the plantation, meaning common buildings. In late 1623, Emmanuel Altham wrote a letter from Plymouth to his brother back in England and reported that there were about 20 houses, but only about five of them were 
very fair and pleasant, which I think probably means they hadn't caught fire yet. The first period architectural style of colonial American homes started in about 1626. Like the Pilgrim homes, first period houses also had steeply pitched roofs, a slightly asymmetrical plan, and a central chimney. The things that distinguish this style most from previous colonial homes are the wood planked roofs rather than thatched roofs, and the windows which are usually diamond paned casement windows rather than the glassless holes in the wall that had dominated previously. Since these houses were a lot less likely to catch fire than the previous colonial homes, there are actually a few of these homes still in existence. The majority of them are in Essex County, Massachusetts. In 1621, the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag natives celebrated the first successful Pilgrim harvest by sitting down together and eating a traditional Thanksgiving of turkey, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, and pumpkin pie. Except that they probably didn't eat any of those things. Even if you dismiss all the other problems with the first Thanksgiving story, we are still left with the fact that they didn't eat what we do for Thanksgiving. While they might have eaten raw cranberries, there were certainly no cranberry sauce at the time. There were also no mashed potatoes, since the potato didn't make its way to North America until the 18th century. There was also no pumpkin pie, since they probably didn't have the flour they needed to make the crust of the pie, and definitely didn't have an oven to bake it in. There's even a good chance that they didn't have turkey, since they lived in a coastal area and waterfowl would have been more common. So what did they eat? There's evidence that they ate wild fowl, but it was likely duck or some other waterfowl. We do know that the Wampanoag brought venison or deer meat to eat, and there's a good chance that they ate a corn-based meal called samp. They also ate things like seafood. Lobster was actually really common in the area they were living in. And they probably also ate cabbage, squash, and onions, as well as other root vegetables. The traditional Thanksgiving dinner, as we know today, is thanks to a woman named Sarah Hale. Sarah was the editor of the Goodies Ladies book. For over 30 years, she used her publication to campaign for the creation of a national Thanksgiving holiday. She finally found a sympathetic ear in Abraham Lincoln, who officially created the holiday in 1863. Hale is also the source of many of our favorite traditional Thanksgiving dishes. While she was campaigning for the holiday, she published recipes and other suggestions for a proper New England Thanksgiving dinner, which included things like turkey, gravy, and pumpkin pie. In 1953, someone at the Swanson Food Company bought too much turkey for Thanksgiving. 260 tons too much turkey. That's like 95 Asian elephants worth of turkey. Or 230 Honda Civics worth of turkey. Rather than let it all go bad, Swanson salesman Jerry Thomas designed the first TV dinner. It consisted of turkey, stuffing, gravy, peas, and sweet potatoes, all packaged in a compartmentalized aluminum tray. Initially, they were sold for 98 cents, and the company wasn't sure if they would be successful. But after one full year of production and 10 million turkey dinners sold, they knew they were onto something. I think advertising the TV dinner as a companion to the new 
nightly family activity, watching the TV, as opposed to listening to the radio, was a brilliant marketing strategy. It made TV dinners seem modern and forward-thinking. In recent years, TV dinners have tried to drop their connection with TV watching and have become frozen dinners. Now the frozen dinner market is worth about $1.2 billion annually. And unfortunately for Swanson, they only have a small portion of that market. This year, my family and my sister's family will be visiting my parents for Thanksgiving. Both my sister and I are vegetarians, but my parents are not. The result? A lot of questions about what is safe to eat and what isn't, and a fancy vegetarian dish, the recipe for which was found on the internet. For anyone out there that is planning to play host to someone with a special diet this Thanksgiving, including my mom, I thought I would give a few tips for hosting guests with a special diet. First, it's always nice to have a main dish that can be eaten in the place of turkey. But it doesn't have to be really fancy, and it doesn't have to be thanksgiving either, if you know what I mean. For vegetarians and vegans, the traditional Thanksgiving main dish is a nut loaf. They are a lot of trouble to make, and often turn out dry and nearly inedible. Then there is the perennial Thanksgiving joke meal, the tofurkey. I think that it is best to forgo these traditional dishes and instead cook something that is, while less traditional, easier to make and more delicious than a tofurkey will ever be. Lasagna made with vegan cheese or root vegetable pot pie with a vegan puff pastry topping are both good choices. My personal favorite this year is a stuffed seasonal squash, like an acorn squash. If stuffed with gluten-free grains, vegetables, and gluten-free vegan cheese, it can satisfy the needs of all the more common special diets and food intolerances, and it will look a lot nicer than a nut loaf. Even the lowly veggie burger with some vegan gravy would make a perfectly acceptable turkey replacement. If you are cooking for someone with a food allergy, depending on the severity of the allergy, it may not be enough to simply make a few dishes that are free of the allergen, since the likelihood of cross-contamination between dishes is pretty high. Remember, a food allergy is not the same as a food intolerance. If a person with a food intolerance eats the food that they have the intolerance to, they might get sick, but they probably won't die from it. If a person with a severe food allergy eats the food that they're allergic to, death is a real possibility. So, if you're cooking for someone with a food allergy this Thanksgiving, especially if the allergy is severe or you don't know how bad the allergy is, it may be better to make sure that all of the food you're cooking is free of the allergen. It is a little bit more work, but avoiding an emergency trip to the hospital on Thanksgiving Day is totally worth it. My top hosting tip is to label all of the food that you'll be serving for Thanksgiving, either with the ingredients it contains or the dietary requirements it satisfies. This way, your guests won't have to keep asking you which foods are safe to eat, so they won't feel like a pest. 
and you'll be free to mingle rather than verbally listing the ingredients in the mashed potatoes one more time. After Abraham Lincoln declared Thanksgiving a national holiday in 1863, the holiday was celebrated on the last Thursday of November with few deviations until 1939, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared that Thanksgiving would be celebrated on the next to last Thursday in November. He did this to increase the length of the Christmas shopping season in an attempt to stimulate the economy during the Depression. Very few people actually celebrated Thanksgiving on this new date, however, and we went back to celebrating Thanksgiving on the last Thursday in November in 1941. This hasn't stopped retailers from trying to push the shopping season earlier and earlier every year, however. Black Friday, the Friday after Thanksgiving, has traditionally been the start of the holiday shopping season in the U.S. But for several years now, many retailers have been opening on Thanksgiving Day in an attempt to get a jump on the holiday season. It all started in 2011 when Walmart opened at midnight for Black Friday, and then the next year opened at 8 p.m. Thanksgiving Day. The practice became very widespread in a very short period of time, and soon most major retailers were opening on Thanksgiving Day or the wee hours of Black Friday. It turns out that the practice hasn't been as profitable as many retailers might have liked, however. And many retailers have found that sales have only gotten worse over the last two years. One of the problems is that online stores are open 24 hours a day, and it's a lot easier to shop from the couch while in a turkey-induced coma. This year, many retailers have announced that they will not be opening on Thanksgiving usually saying that they are motivated by the fact that Thanksgiving is for families. But the truth is that it's not profitable. Even Black Friday is expected to lose its position as the top shopping day this year, replaced by December 23rd, just two days before Christmas. Whatever the reason, the fact is that Thanksgiving is for friends and families. So take advantage of the store closures and spend the time that you would be elbowing someone in the face for the last cheap TV, and instead, Spend it elbowing your family in the face for the last turkey leg. Well, that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps new shows get noticed. And come back in two weeks for our next episode. In the meantime, you can get in touch at hangerhatpodcast at gmail.com or visit our website, hangerhatpodcast.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on the show. 